all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. We're going to be taking your calls during the hour regarding any type of health care issues that might be on your mind, any kind of questions you have about medications. Maybe it's a new symptom that hasn't been diagnosed yet, or maybe it's a new diagnosis that you received that you didn't quite know what to expect, or maybe didn't get all the information that you wanted. This is the place that you can do that. You can reach us today at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. If you can't call us today, we'd love to hear from you, so send us an email. You can send those to remedy at mpbonline.org. We review those and try to get back to you personally, but we also like to share those with our larger audience because there are always such great questions that pertain to just about everybody who's listening. So check us out on MPB Online as well. Um, if you go to the website, you can uh, look at the archive programs that we have there. It usually takes about a day or so to to get those posted, but maybe you didn't quite catch everything that we said on the program and you wanted to go back and listen to it, that's the place to do it on mpbonline.org. Well, I hope everybody's having a great Wednesday. Lots of sunshine out there and, uh, you know, sort of a transition time of year. If you're a planner like myself, you have already looked at the calendar and looked at uh, what the first uh, frost day is. If you're going to start anything inside, then plan it. And that's, a, now that's an exciting time for me to think about that, plan it out. I love to put all that kind of stuff down on paper and start to think about uh, what I'm going to have for the springtime. Um, if you are sort of getting back in the swing of things, I know I, uh, I have limited clinic just because of my um, my administrative responsibilities now at uh, UMMC. But um, but some of my patients, you know, we've given the option and certainly have the option depending on what uh, what insurance they have for remote telehealth visits, and those have been really good, and they do have their limitations. There are certainly some things that are hard to deal with, even with audiovisual technology that we have now, but um, certainly a way to reach out to our patients that can't come in the office uh, physically or maybe have some concerns with that to try to limit, uh, limit their exposures. But I would encourage you don't just blow off going back to your physician. There's so many different things that um, go into, particularly as we get older, to a usual, normal, yearly physician's uh, visit. 
If you have chronic health conditions like type 2 diabetes or hypertension or uh, dyslipidemias, uh, lots of different things, you certainly want to see them and probably more often uh, than once a year unless you're really, really well controlled on your current regimen and are not having any problems. But I know a lot of patients have been sort of delaying those. It looks to be like, although we have seen less impact with uh, COVID uh, from the, the larger scale that we saw in the last couple of years, it's probably still going to be with us from time to time. So uh, I would encourage everybody out there to at least check in with your, with your physician or your healthcare provider so that they can provide those really needed yearly checkups. Uh, to help prevent some uh, things that pop up. And certainly the earlier we catch just about everything, uh, it's never a good idea to let stuff just go uh, go on. It always gets worse if you do that. So just keep that in mind and uh, check in with um, with your physician as soon as you can. The number to call this morning if you have a question for us is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Let's go to Terry from Gulfport. Good morning, Terry. Uh, good morning, Dr. Stewart. Doing well, I hope. Yes, sir. Go ahead. Okay. Yes, I am uh, uh, 75, uh, and uh, I have a problem with gaining weight. A number of years ago, it's probably been 10 or 12 years, I lost a significant amount of weight, like 25 or 30 pounds in a month and a half, and I got tested with everything, the PET scans, the whole bit, HIV, and everything was okay. And I try to eat as much as I can, and I still have trouble gaining weight. At about 5'10", I wanted to weigh about uh, about 125 pounds, and I uh, just looked kind of emaciated. My personal doctor uh, prescribed me something called Magesterol, and uh, I read through it, and it didn't make a whole lot of sense. I've been on it for about two weeks, and it doesn't seem to be doing anything. Do you know anything about that, drug, doctor? Yeah, magesterol or, or sometimes megase is another name for it. So uh, it is a common medication that we sometimes try in patients where we really can't find a, a good reason why they're losing weight um, and we're trying to, you know, get them to, to gain weight. Now, it, it does, uh, you know, there are some, some different it really has been studied more in cases where we have a known cause of weight loss. For instance, mm-hmm. if you have a chronic disease uh, like cancer or if you have uh, a neurologic condition, certainly that can increase your um, you know your appetite and everything. but um, it is it's pretty it, it, I have found if you, if we don't have a really good uh, a good cause in adults for it, it really doesn't work mm-hmm. as well. Um, and it's more in patients who have lost their appetite, so they don't have that drive uh-huh. center to really do that. If you're if you're fine that from that standpoint, you know, if you're like, well, you know, I I eat, I I have, you know, I have the the sort of the the triggers for that. We do as we get older, we lose a little bit of that, so we have to sort of, you know, particularly if you're losing weight, you have to eat whether you're um, whether you're hungry or not. Um, but, um, but, you know, it's in your case, uh, if it hasn't worked in about two weeks, I don't know that it's really going to work that well. Um, you okay. might want to give it a couple of more, you know, uh, a couple of more weeks to try to, uh, see if, um, 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 you know, see if it's going to work. But yeah. after that, if it's not going to work in a month, it's probably not going to work. 
and 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 just because they did all those labs before doesn't mean that maybe you need another looking at you know from uh, the standpoint of of really thinking outside the box. Certain endocrinologic uh, uh, disorders can do that. You know, thyroid dysfunction is a common one. Um, there are are subtle GI problems with uh, that have to do with absorption of different nutrients that um, that are sometimes a problem too. So those are two right. specialties that I go to when I get stumped um, with weight loss right. in, in adults. Right. Um, and they might can they might can uh, get to the diagnosis, but um, right. in the meantime, I would just try to do the best you can with eating as much calories as you can. Not too many right. people get that advice from physicians to. Uh, to eat as much as you can and make sure it's a healthy, you know, sort of healthy mix. Right, but right, right. I would I would give what? the megase or the Magestrol about two more weeks, and then if it's not going to work okay. at, you know, after that, it's probably not worth Wait, continuing. Right. Yeah. yeah. What surprised me uh, is that I have advanced COPD, not to the point where I'm on, you know, oxygen or anything like that. But what mm-hmm. surprised me is my doctor said that just breathing you know, from COPD, burns a lot of calories. I had never heard of that before. Yeah, it does, and that is one of the chronic, uh, you know, disease uh, states that we look at that we're like, you know, you're probably going to have to increase your your caloric intake. Um and there's a there's another group of people that have, you know, if you look at other lung diseases, uh, chronic lung diseases like cystic fibrosis, Mm-hmm. Uh, they have increased caloric needs, not necessarily from the breathing standpoint, but from the absorption standpoint too. Right. But that's that's totally true, and you may not notice it. You're not like, well, I'm not panting, I'm not breathing really, you know, excessively. But that can uh-huh. be up to 20% of your total caloric uh, expenditures for the day really? of your energy expenditures. Yeah, just dependent. And if you do more, you know, if you're even doing some mild activities, you're going to have to work hard to do that. So that that may yeah. be one reason right there why you're having, you know, a little bit of problem with it, but um, it can be pretty subtle. Okay. Yeah. Well, I appreciate the information. It's just hard for me to be hungry in the morning. I know I read through all the uh, weight gain things on the Internet, and I'm going to say, you know, you should eat multiple meals a day and, you know, good healthy things with a lot of calories. But, gosh, I get up in the morning, and really my entire life I've never really been hungry for breakfast. You know, I'll just mm-hmm. have to small lunch and a big dinner and then snack until I go to bed, but I'm doing something wrong. I just need to get some weight. And talking to a nutritionist, too, might be something that you may want to check into if you hadn't already, because they could look at, you know, a, a dietary recall and say, okay, well, exact, you know, here's here's what you what you need, here's what you're taking in, and they may, even the times that you eat may have an impact there, so that's not a bad idea either to to touch base with them. I think I will do that. And thanks so much for your advice. I enjoy your program, Doctor. All right. Thank you for calling. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. Join us each week for Everyday Tech on MPB Think Radio. We have an IT expert, a computer repair ace, and we troubleshoot your problems on the phones as well. Everyday Tech, Wednesdays at 10 on MPB Think Radio. Download the podcast now.
or listen on YouTube on the MPB Think Radio channel. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome back to Southern Remedy. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning answering your questions. I already got a good one on the line, and uh, we've got plenty more time for you to call in with your health care issues. You can reach us this morning by calling one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Let's go to Neil, who's in our neighboring state of Alabama. Good morning, Neil. Good morning. Love the show. Thank um, you. Uh, Enjoying it. Quick question. Um, it's about um, leg cramps. I've had leg cramps basically most of my life since I was a teenager. Um, and I haven't had any medication for it. I just take um, um, some leg cramp tablets that I got from the chemist occasionally. It normally happens at night. Now, I'm my wife noticed and spoke to me about the fact that, you know, I don't, I try and have a healthy diet and I don't drink things like sodas or alcohol. I, I just really drink water and milk. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, my wife said she was looking at, looking up leg cramps and it was to do with the buildup of lactic acid. Uh, and maybe um, because I have a lot of dairy products and milk and things, um, that was what was calling, causing the problem. So yes. I've cut out. I've cut out dairy. I'm on. I'm using lactate, and I've cut out uh, yogurt. I've cut out cheese, etc., etc. My leg cramps have disappeared. Oh wow! Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, and, and I, I was, say well as well because I've had it all my life and it's been a problem. Yeah. Um, what I I, was, I wanted to share that, but I mean, I've one time when I had leg cramps really bad at night. Somebody I was staying with phoned the ambulance and I ended up in hospital because they thought I was having a heart attack or something. Mm. So. I mean, it's not just an inconvenience. It, it, it's been really bad. And I have to say, I'm, I'm amazed. Like, you know, I say, oh, wow, because it, it's just disappeared. And uh, I don't know what's going on other than maybe they were right and I'm lactose intolerant and uh, it seems to have cured it. I just wonder what your thoughts were on that. Yeah, it certainly, I have uh, had some patients that uh, have had leg cramps, and outside the normal things, you know, sometimes you can have deficiencies of magnesium, potassium, or vitamin D that can impact those. Um, our muscles, as we use them, they do produce lactic acid, and uh, there, there can be a buildup. That's sort of, you know, if you've ever done a strenuous activity, uh, you know, I've, I've done a few marathons, and uh, at the end of those, certainly, I've had a buildup of lactic acid that I have felt for days to come. Um, but right. it's much more complicated than that with daily cramps, and Sometimes, particularly at night, too, they can be associated with uh, some of the the disorders that we call the parasomnias, and those are um, those are conditions that affect you at night around the time that you either fall asleep or during sleep, and they can be associated also with leg cramps. 
Diet is extremely important too. So what you, you know, eating a healthy diet, like you mentioned, and making sure that you stay away from things that could potentially harm you uh, over time, drinking plenty of fluids, including water, um, is is extremely important. And um, some patients have found that certain types of foods do sort of set them off, and um, it, it doesn't surprise me necessarily that that dairy products is one of those for a lot of people, particularly if you're if you're you know Caucasian. Uh, uh, the, as you get older, you lose the ability to metabolize uh, lactose. Now, lactose and lactate they're totally different substances, even though they sound the same. So it's not really the well, same right, pathway. Okay. But you can have certain sensitivities to what you eat, and by trial and error, and it sounds like you hit it on the head pretty good, or your wife did at least. Give her credit for that. Um, That um, that it you know that you got one that that uh, cured you of that. So I would stick with that. I can't really tie those two together, but I do. There's certainly like we we all know that diet is very tied uh, closely to our health and that sensitivities, maybe not true allergies, but sensitivities to certain things can exacerbate a lot of problems that we have. Okay, so it sounds like although it's not cause and effect as such, happy happenstance, we've hit on a solution and it works. Absolutely, absolutely, right. and that's and that you know I I might uh, pass that along to other people, and it doesn't have to be dairy products. You know, you can. Um, I've known people that went from literal, uh, you know, little or no vegetable intake to increasing that and had an improvement, or they were eating a certain type of like red meat and then cut that out, and so it, it's pretty complex. There are differences in how the muscles work in different people, and you can have deficiencies of certain enzymes and certain um, uh, how you deal with electrolytes in those spaces where the the uh, muscle cells work and then also the end plates of the neurons that connect to them. Uh, and that can cause, that can certainly put you at, at risk at least for muscle cramps, and that's probably probably why you've had it all your life. So, But you know what? I think you have certainly uh, done a little detective work and uh, figured that out for yourself, and that's uh, kudos to you for doing that. And hopefully that will stick and uh, you can continue to be cramp-free. Great. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for your, your update on that. I, as I say, I, I was amazed, but uh, it makes a bit more sense now. Great. Sure, sure. All right, Neil, thank you for calling. Let's go to uh, Tom and Brandon. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Dr. Jimmy. How are you? Good. Uh, What's your question this morning? My wife, at the end of last year, fractured a hip, and she was in long-term rehabilitation, and they periodically take blood tests, and they found that her potassium was low. Mm -hmm. But my wife believed that taking it was making her extremely thirsty, so she was only taking a fourth of what they were prescribing. My question is, one, is uh, extreme thirst a, a side pro- uh, product of taking potassium? And two, what are the consequences of low potassium in your blood? Yeah. So yeah, potassium is one of those things that um, if you're in the hospital, you're more at risk for it. If you're t- taking certain medications, things like the loop diuretics, which the most common one out there is Lasix, 
that can put you at risk for it. Sometimes thiazide diuretics can do that too. So if you have medication changes, that's one of the first things we look at. But beyond that, it really has to do with the intake of potassium and how much that you get rid of, which the primary way is through the urine and the kidneys. So uh, that's the mechanism by which you, you keep it at a, a standard level. As far as like taking potassium, there's two different forms. There's a solid form. There's a, uh, sort of a, a cap. Uh, sorry, a uh, tablet form, and then there's a liquid form. Both of those can be irritating to your stomach, particularly the cat, the um, the tablet. Um, so a lot of people can have a little bit of problems with that. As far as thirst, I haven't I haven't heard of that being correlated to thirst other than just it's a nasty tablet to take. A lot of people just can't tolerate it. Um, now, you can. I mean, certainly it's easy to find which, you know, some foods that are high in potassium. There's a lot of vegetables and fruits that are high in potassium. Certainly uh, citrus uh, fruits um, are, are very high in potassium and good sources of potassium in your diet. But if there's a problem in the gut with the absorption of that or there's a problem at the kidney level, then uh, you got to sort of, uh, you know, you, you really need the, the input of either a nutritionist or a medical professional to, to navigate those waters. Um, now, as as far as like what's the harm in a lower potassium? Oh, one other thing I should mention too. If I mentioned magnesium before, magnesium is is intricately related to the levels of potassium in your body. So if you have uh, low magnesium levels and you're not replacing those as well as the potassium it's really difficult to get the potassium level back up. So that's something else to think about if in a patient, if you, you know, if I'm replacing potassium appropriately with supplementation or with diet or both, and the potassium is still low, uh, I will check for a magnesium level to see if it's low and that may need to be supplemented as well. Um, as far as the effects of lower potassium, one of the first things is is uh, pretty profound fatigue. So you just feel like you don't have any energy, particularly in your muscles or doing things. Um, you really just uh, are sort of just a bag of of, uh, of of wet wet sand. You just feel like you just want to just um, you just weak all over. Um, once it gets down into uh, really low levels um, beyond that, then you can start to have some problems with muscular activity and the electrical activity of your heart. Uh, so that can be that can be a problem as well. There can be some EKG changes that you can see, um, and those you know uh, not to get that technical, but you know if it, your potassium gets much below 2.5, that's the point where you can have some of those more serious problems. But most people, you know, if, it, if their potassium is, I like to see it greater than four uh, on on your labs, but um, you know, you you can you can start to have some symptoms if it's less than four, but usually less than three and a half to to less than three is when you start to to feel some of those symptoms. I would caution anybody who has kidney uh, problems to check with their doctor before they increase their potassium level, just because that's again that's the main way your body gets rid of excess potassium, and you can run into just as many, if not more, problems if you're taking supplementation and your kidneys aren't you're able to, to get rid of that. Uh, and dehydration can do that too. If you're dehydrated, your kidneys are going to be like, you know, I need to hold on to as much fluid as I can in the body, so I'm not going to make excess urine, and um, it doesn't really care what the potassium level is. So they're in times of dehydration too, for whatever cause, you can run into to problems with electrolytes. Okay. Well, I appreciate uh, 
your update. Uh, I'll try and pass that on to my wife, and we'll try and see what we can do. All right, Tom. Thank you for calling. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. Southern Remedies, Relatively Speaking, is a show that explores issues that relate to you and your family. To find out what we're all about, subscribe to the podcast by using any podcast app or by downloading our MPB public media app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning answering your calls. Got some great ones so far. And uh, some people ask after the fact, you know, they, they say, you know, it seemed like there was just one theme throughout the whole program. I really wanted to call in, but it didn't seem like that was on theme. Good news for you. We take any and all calls, um, so you don't have to stick to the same thing that the last caller was calling in about on. So we do have uh, other Southern Remedy programs during the week that are thematic, but generally speaking, on Wednesdays uh, on Original Southern Remedy, we just take it as it comes. So uh, call in now with your question, no matter what it is about the health care of you or someone else in your family or maybe even friends. You can reach us at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven. Let's go to Andrew. Andrew, Andrew, are you there? I got a lot of static there with Andrew. We'll try to clean that up uh, and come back to him uh, if we can. Andrew, if you might, could call back, sometimes call him back on the same uh, even if it's on the same phone on a different line, or turning down things in the background like the radio may help out. Um, but uh, all that complicated ways of calling in. Uh, but uh, we'll try to get back to you in just a minute. Talked a little bit about normal screenings that you should have on a yearly basis. And a lot of people say, you know, how many times do you actually pick up on things? Um, typically speaking, you know, it depends on what we're screening for. But uh, really, the the way that that is determined is by the general, you know, how good is your screening tool, whether that's a history, physical exam, and or test. Um, uh, that's one way that we pick up on things. But sometimes uh, we also look at what's the background of that disease in the population. For instance, high blood pressure. We know that a large proportion of the population in Mississippi has high blood pressure, so we screen quite frequently even if uh, you're younger. So it sort of depends on that. Diabetes is another one. Uh, Or if it's something that we can potentially treat to prevent something that's very serious later on, like treating those risk factors for heart attack and stroke or kidney disease, which certainly affects a lot of our population too. So screenings are important, and there's a lot of thought process into that and how to develop that. All right, I think we got Andrew back from Vicksburg. Good morning, Andrew. Can you hear me? Yes, loud and clear now. I don't know what okay. we had before, but uh, that is much better. Okay, thank you. Um, my wife, I think it's called neuropathy. Uh, her like her toes and fingers, like 
single yeah. one. There's mm-hmm. What yeah. can she do for that? Well, it depends on the cause. So, Andrew, she, there's she there's type a, two diabetic. Diabetes. Okay, so that's one of the more common ones, and that tends to be uh, a uh, stocking glove distribution. So the feet are the number one, or the the you know lower part of the leg uh, mm-hmm. is is the most common area. But you can have it in your hands too. So it's like if you were wearing stockings and gloves. That's why we call it that. Um, it is it is caused by as as that glucose level is higher, that blood sugar level is higher. It does damage to to not only blood vessels but nerves, and it damages their ability to feel sensation. And it can also be accompanied not only by numbness, but it can be accompanied by pain too. So when those nerves get uh, damaged they can perceive pain that's not there. So sometimes patients will say, well, they're numb, but I also feel pins and needles sensation right. or maybe even some sharp pains. So that's, that's a, you know, it can be really debilitating to, to, uh, to patients to have that. So I know you probably know about that. Your wife certainly knows about it, but just to, to yeah. get that context. So in diabetes, the, the, the first thing to prevent further damage is to try to get that blood sugar down to normal levels as much as possible. And uh, in my diabetics, unless there is a, a good reason, I would try to get them down at least below a uh, hemoglobin A1C of 7, but probably less than 6.5. And the better control you get of that, the the better improvement you can get in those nerves. The other thing is there's there are some medications. Now, typically pain medications, you know, some of the, the over-the-counter things don't work as well. Tylenol, I have found, works a little bit better than in the NSAIDs like Aleve and Ibuprofen. But really, because it's nerve-type pain, there's other medications that may work a little bit better. Gabapentin or uh, Neurontin is another name for it, or Lyrica. Uh, both of those have been used. You sort of have to, you know, it's not. some people will say, well, I started on that. It didn't give me much improvement. It really takes a little bit of time, and you got to increase the dose of it. They do okay, have she, she started, I'm sorry, she started on the, the, the um, Neurontin. Um, Yes, sir. And she has like some uh, it, mentally, it like messed her. Like it wasn't good for her. It yeah, yeah. So it'll make you. It'll make you really sleepy, and sometimes it interferes with sort of the way you're thinking. Yes. Um, so if if you're having problems on one of them, sometimes you can change. And Neurontin, you're usually or gabapentin is the first one that most people are tried on. She may want to inquire about going to Lyrica. Um, okay. to see if she gets a better a better response with it. And usually the higher doses, I will prescribe at night because the biggest side effect with both those medications is it makes you sleepy. Of course, if you're having problems with neuropathy at night and it's keeping you up, that can be a plus. Um, but it can, you know, affect you during the day. If that doesn't work, there are some other medications. Uh, one that i found to be pretty useful is called Cymbalta. That's with a C, not an S. Cymbalta is an an anti-depression medication, but it's also been used particularly by our pain specialist for chronic pain and, in particular, neuropathic pain. So that may be another medication. And you can prescribe both those, you know, both uh, the Cymbalta with something like gabapentin or the Lyrica uh, at the same time. And then beyond that, I would probably go to a pain specialist that might can help out in extreme situations. They can do some things directly to some of the major nerves. The problem with that, though, is 
you really don't want to lose sensation. Um, if you can provide some, um, you know, sensation to uh, that's preserved, uh, because uh, you know, if you've you may have known diabetic patients who they bumped their foot, they didn't know it, then it got infected, and then they had some more problems down the line. So we really try to preserve that and not damage those nerves further, even if it's going to cause you know the pain to go away. But a pain specialist can be very helpful um, while you're trying to get that blood sugar down, and it does take time. Unfortunately, this is not something that gets you know fixed overnight. Right. Um, have but you seen I would, the commercial for Nervive? Nervive? Uh-huh. Yeah, uh-huh. and that's one of the newer ones, and uh, some people have tried that. I haven't had a whole lot of patients that have tried that, but um, it's usually I would try these first couple of things, uh, first couple of medications that, that have had more you know, experience and, and time to study those. And if you get a good response with that, that's great. Uh, if not, then usually I would progress on to something like that one and, and maybe a couple of others. I have one other question. Um, uh-huh. I, I take I take med, uh, pain medication. Uh, I take Norco uh, from a gunshot injury. And, uh, I'm, I'm okay. I tried THC. I smoked. Uh-huh. Yeah, and I'm scared. If I fail a drug test, will they stop giving my pain medicine? Uh, most of the time, yes. Now THC is one that they may. I would be upfront with them about that, but you know, a lot of them will say if you have any kind of other medication, and the reason for that is, even with THC, you know, I, I know that's probably going to change somewhat with the uh, new legislation in the state um, for for medical marijuana. Uh, and and I tried it, and it's not good for me. You know, I'm not going to do it anymore. You know? Yeah, yeah. I like it. And, but um I I yeah, it, it can show up and it can show up for a long period of time. That's one of the other issues with it is that, you know, it's going to be there in your system for at least a few weeks if not to a month. Right. It really depends on the dose that you get with it. Right. I heard like 30 days or something like that, yeah. Uh okay. it's probably longer than that. I would say a couple oh. of weeks. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Yes, sir. Thank you for calling. We appreciate it. This is Southern Remedy. Uh, the number to call is one eight seven seven MPB ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. We're going to go to Christopher in Clinton. Uh, good, good afternoon. How are you doing this morning? Oh, I'm all right. Um, I was hoping to get your opinion on starting a carnivore or meat only diet. Yeah, so the, a lot, all of our meat-eating friends out there are are all about this one, and um, there have been some limited studies on that, and it does work for some people. Now, certainly, if you have certain conditions, uh, so, you know, a lot of people will do like a pa- a paleo diet, like P A L E O. Um, so it's um, you know it's it you can lose weight on it. Uh, it tends to make you feel that you're fuller faster. Um, you don't have the issues with carbs like some people do. Some people are very sensitive to that. You do still have to have um, usually with a with a meat type diet. You're going to get enough protein. Certainly, you're going to get enough fat in your diet. The carbohydrates are the ones you have to sort of modulate. And uh, a lot of people will say, well, yeah, I, I fill up faster, uh, but then I just run out of energy quick, and they have to add a little bit of carbohydrates in there. Now, if you've got coronary artery disease, if you've had a stroke, you may want to talk to your physician first about that because it can certainly raise your 
your cholesterol levels, uh, depending on how much that you eat. I would say eat leaner meats, though, if you want to do something like that. Um, If you do have other medical conditions, it's not a bad idea to talk to a nutritionist first. But I know a lot of people that have started that and were very successful in losing weight. Okay. Uh, So just generally, you don't see any dangers in uh, trying it and making sure that I'm, you know, on board with my doctor, getting my blood work done normally just to check up with everything. But generally, you don't see any dangers in it? Uh, There are, we know, not necessarily, we haven't seen any dangers from doing this particular diet. What we know is the more, at the general population level, though, there are studies that have shown that the more red meat that you eat, the more fatty foods that you eat, that does contribute to increasing your risk of heart attack or stroke, particularly if you've already had one. So that's the kind of studies that we do have. We just don't have enough studies and information to say that this one's totally safe. But I would say as long as your physician says, hey, you don't really have any other problems, um, you know, we're looking at your blood work periodically, I think it's probably fine to try because, again, for some people, they do very well with that, uh, particularly if they need to lose weight. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. Hey, this is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio, or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning, taking your calls about all kinds of good things. The number to call is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or send us an email. You can send those to remedy at mpbonline.org. Let's go to Dave in Bethel Springs, Tennessee. Good morning, Dave. Good morning. I uh, appreciate your program. I'm calling about my wife. Uh, she's a type 2 diabetic, and she's in kidney failure. She has to have dialysis. And the 1st of December, they put a fistula in her left arm. And the purpose of that was to get away from the upper chest tubes that they say is easy to her to get infected. And from the day one, her left hand has been extremely painful, and she can't seem to use it. And we're talking about emergency five times, four out of the five, it was triggered from dialysis. And I understand what steel syndrome is. I read up on it, and the doctor said that's what they diagnosed it as. And that, from what I understand, is just what it sounds like, that, you know, you steal blood from the hand to send it up through the artery to make your dialysis easier and function better. 
The problem is the hand has been numb from day one, and the extreme pain, the way she describes it, is like putting your hand in a vice. And I'm not talking about taking a pill. I'm talking about they, you know, put her, we go to the emergency room, and they gave her the, I call it the heavy-duty drugs, the Dilaudid and morphine, and basically have to knock her out, and then she's there four or five hours, and then we come home. But the question they took the fistula out as in the way he described it, the surgeon, was they tied it off. And we still got the same problem. Now, we haven't been to the emergency room since, but she still can't function with that hand, and it's still extremely painful. And, you know, she still has to take pain pills for that. And I'm wondering what direction do we go now to get use back of this hand? And the surgeon we, we made kind of a joke about it. I said, if you don't get this fixed, you're going to have to come to my house and split wood, which is what my wife has to do, which it was just a joke, obviously. <laughs> right. And he laughed about it, but he guaranteed me, he said, I will guarantee you 100% she will get full use of it back. And that hasn't happened. So what do we do now? What's the next step in your opinion? Yeah, that so that is a I mean that's a not a common I would say but it is a complication um of um you know certain fistulas and the, the where they are like the you know in the arm there can be different different places um then and the percentages are a little bit different but usually it's less than uh less than 5%. Unfortunately, she's got it. Uh tying the fistula off almost always corrects that over time. So if you, uh, and basically what, you know, you, you described it very well. What you're doing is you're, with a fistula, you're creating a, a connection to a big artery and a big vein. And it's just to, to give enough blood flow that they can take enough blood out to filter it in dialysis and then put it back in. So um, in doing that, though, they alter blood flow patterns to the arm downstream of that. And particularly during dialysis, when they're taking out the blood, you just decrease the pressure downstream. And it feels exactly like what you described it, that she describes it, uh, is that it's basically angina that you can get in your heart, but it's in your hand. So that squeezing type pain is what our body interprets when we don't get enough blood flow to an extremity. So... Um, there are some some ways to to correct that. Um, the vascular surgeons are really pretty good at that, and um, you know I would stick with them about that. But there is a a neuropathic, and I'm blanking on the name of it right now. But there's a neuropathic cl complication sometimes too. So they may want to get a pain specialist involved in this, and or a neurologist that is familiar with this, like a peripheral neurologist, um, because you can have some neuropathy that's associated with that in a very small percent of cases, and you may have to shift gears on how they do it, because usually if they tie that fistula off, you usually get blood flow immediately back to the hand, and it shouldn't really you know, be dependent on anything. The other thing that might be um, of some interest is does she have problems when that hand is lifted above her heart? Because that would lend itself to more blood flow. If it's not, if it's not positional as much uh, with changing when she has it, then they may want to shift gears and go towards the neuropathy. Um, so that that may be, you know, that may be something to to look at. Uh, and there may be something else at the wrist level um, that's compressing blood flow 
that is that may need to be looked at. There's some ways that they can look at, but I think a, co- a coordinated effort between that vascular surgeon and a neurologist should get to the bottom of the issue. Well, every one of the trips to the emergency room, all of the doctors, and we've been to probably been to two hospitals and probably at least a half a dozen different doctors, and every one of them says they don't feel like it's nerve, but one of the actual emergency room physicians at Magnolia there in Corinth, which is an excellent hospital, detected a blockage under her armpit, which would restrict the flow to a certain extent, and we opened that up, and we thought, well, that's going to solve it, and that didn't help it either, so... You know, everybody seems to think it's not, you know, neurological, but like I said, I'm kind of with you. I think if nothing else is working, what do we got to lose? We can't keep living like this, you know? Yeah, and and it, in a way, it's the blood flow dropping to that nerve, too. That can be another cause of it. So if it's, if, you know, the nerves that innervate the hand, if you're decreasing blood flow to them, uh, and the muscles, uh, the muscular part of it can be corrected, but it may it may be to the to the nerve as well. I think it's going to take a little a little bit more detective work by them and and probably a couple of different specialists. Um, it probably wouldn't be a bad idea to go to a regional specialist on this either. Corinth is a great place to you know to to with some really smart doctors there, but in this case it's so rare you may want to go to somewhere like Nashville that might be a little bit. I'm not even sure um, where's Bethel Springs. We're just a few miles from Selmer. We're about 75 miles southeast of Memphis. Oh, okay, okay. So Memphis, Memphis may actually. Uh, you know, be the the best uh, bet for a regional place that might could help you. Okay. Well, I appreciate your help. Thank you very much. All right, Dave. Take care. We've got two minutes left. We're going to try to squeeze Patricia from Natchez. It's been patiently waiting. Good morning, Patricia. Good morning. How are you? Good. What's your question this morning? Well, uh, I've had several ailments through my lifetime, and I'm at 70 now. But the thing of it is, is that... Um, through asthma and taking high doses of prednisone, I heard your uh, caller talking about the lactose and all that. So I've been watching things. But recently, in the last year or so, I had been having a serious problem with bowel movements, like seven and eight a day. And then uh, for about five or six months, I was being treated because I'm also a survivor of skin cancer. So mm-hmm. I um, had been taking, um, having tests monthly, uh, all mostly through two, uh, 21. And they said I probably had H. pylori. Mm-hmm. So I've had scopes and everything, but it did show up uh, when I had a scope and uh, something else I had. But anyway, um, I was being treated. Then I would be sent to a couple of different doctors. But the symptoms are still there. I'm not doing the seven or eight. Well, I'll tell you what, they ended up saying I had C. diff. And, you know, to my knowledge, I'm not around a whole lot of people, but I don't know where I could have gotten, gotten it yeah, from. But Patricia, we got limited time. I'm going to give you a couple of different of, of directions to go in. It doesn't surprise me that you got C. diff. That's something that's in our gut anyway. It just gets uh, sort of knocked down to, to tolerable levels from our good bacteria. But all the other medical problems you've had and things that you've been treated for, it wouldn't surprise me if the types of bacteria in your intestines have changed to the point where you're not having enough good ones in there. I would get to a good GI specialist 
therapist that understands dysmotility disorders, uh, and particularly that Mike could could broaden out, maybe treat you with uh, some things like some good bacteria that you can put back in your system if you haven't done that already, and then to look at all the other medications that are affecting you because that can certainly knock your GI tract out of whack. Thanks for listening to this MPB Think Radio podcast. MPB depends on support from listeners, so if you can, please contribute today at mpbonline.org.